Hey there! Our vision for Lakewood Vineyard is to be a place where you can reimagine faith in Jesus and have a fresh encounter with God. We aim to create a place where we can explore faith, discover authentic community, and go out and love our world together. Here's this week's message. 1 Peter 4, 1-11 Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So who comes to mind when you think of someone who is defined by a life well lived? You know that person, that that kind of person that when they talk, when they share about their experiences, there's a depth, there's a richness to them. Not everything in their lives had turned out the way they expected. There was tragedy, there was failure, but there was also such significance. There was love, there was purpose, there was intentionality. There was a depth in their relationships and their experiences. These are the kind of people that we just want to sit with and listen to and talk with them about their experiences, but do less talking and just listening. Maybe you had that in a grandparent or a mentor, or maybe there's a a famous person that you've admired or an author that you've admired from a distance and you'd love just to have the chance to share a coffee with, to hear about them, to read about them. You've done that, but you're just fascinated to hear and learn more about the kind of life that they've lived. It's so interesting, I think, to listen to people near the end of their lives who have lived lives like this, whether it's in their memoirs or actual conversations, and to hear them reflect on their life, what mattered, what didn't, what they wish they could do over, what they regret, what they're proud of, the lessons they've learned, their achievements, what they've conquered, where they failed. And here in our passage today, and really throughout this letter, we're getting Peter's reflections on what he's learned on how to live as a Christian in the culture and society that isn't friendly to his faith in Jesus. He's sharing from a life well lived of what he's learned in following Jesus while Jesus was physically on earth, but also now following the resurrected Jesus. See, Peter had given and has given his entire life for his faith and trust in God, And after this, not too long after writing this letter, he'll give his actual life for it. And he's writing to women and men. He's writing to slave and free people. He's writing to those who are experiencing some level of persecution and resistance to their faith. 
We've talked about it every week. But you see, these people, they, they need this encouragement that Peter is giving them because they're suffering unjustly. They're being mistreated. And Peter told, tells them that when, they're, uh, suffer, when they suffer unjustly, remember that Jesus, their king, their master, their rescuer, he'd been treated unjustly. When they've uh, been mistreated, Jesus was mistreated. When they don't have any power in their culture, remember that Jesus gave up all his power to rescue us. That they're in good company in their difficulties and their trials. They're in good company with Peter too. And so as we approach these verses that I just read, what we see is a powerful picture of what I think are some of the principles and practices that Peter says are crucial in living your life for God. These are some of the things that I think the Apostle Peter, St. Peter, if he were to sit down with us over a cup of coffee, he would say these are the things. Over a glass of wine, he would say these are the things that should characterize your life, a life well lived in following Jesus. And here's the first thing he says is don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. In verses one through three, Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. See, Peter saying that suffering makes us reevaluate our entire lives, what truly matters, what's worthwhile. Often we hear about people who have near-death experiences or have significant tragedy in their life, and they seem to emerge with this new perspective on life on what matters most, especially when it seems like it was all going to be taken away. Maybe they overcame cancer when they didn't expect it. They barely survived a car wreck. Maybe their marriage seemed hopeless and it came back from the brink of divorce. Maybe it was just a transformation of priorities on the other side of such difficult experiences, a change of perspective, a change of what truly matters. This is what Peter is saying here. While when people who have received the new life that Jesus offers, when they experience suffering because of this faith, Peter's saying that sometimes they get this, oftentimes they get this new perspective on life that gets this truth of their faith even deeper inside of them. It's this reality of what Jesus has done, what he offers them, and how they want to live their lives now on the other side of suffering. He says in verse 2, as a result of their suffering because of their faith, As a result of the difficulty they've experienced, they now have a clearer picture of what truly matters in life. They have a new picture of what they want to do with the rest of their lives. They don't want to waste the rest of their lives on what Peter calls evil human desires, but rather they want to waste their lives living for God's desire, God's will. What Peter isn't saying is that every human desire is evil. No, God created us with desires that are good and wonderful. Peter Peter means humanity's fallen desires. These desires that point us to only satisfy our own wants and desires, no matter the cost to others or even to ourselves. No matter how these desires align with what God has said is best and will give real life, no matter what God says uh, real flourishing looks like, we just satisfy our desires no matter what. But living lives to pursue these desires is how the world around these Christians live. But this is also how the people that are in these churches that Peter is writing to, this is how they used to live. This is their story. This is the world that they're coming from. 
Peter says in verse 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And we should actually be really encouraged by these verses. This gives us insight into the type of people that made up the churches that Peter is writing to. These aren't people with clean pasts, made no mistakes, don't have any regrets kind of people. Before they experience new life, their old lives look like everyone else's, running from one thing to another thing, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction, purpose in life. And it's these people with this kind of past that Peter has been saying have been given new life, that they've experienced new birth, that they're chosen by God, they're temples of God's spirit, they've been united with Jesus, God is their father, they have a living hope in Christ. These are the people that Peter has said are called to show the glory of God to the world. And just so we're clear, what kind of lives these Christians had lived, what was going on in the world, just real quick, what some of these words mean, because they're not words we use every day. Peter says debauchery, and here's what debauchery is. Essentially, it's throwing off any restraint, any limit, living as if there's no repercussions, no morality, just doing whatever you want to, whenever you want to. And usually this word implies that in a sexual way. If it felt good, go for it. And this is an echo in our culture too, right? As sexual expression is really only limited by the need of consent from the other person. If you had that, anything is fair game as long as the other person consents. So then we have lust. He talks about lust, which again is normally related to sex, but it's really just about strongly desiring anything or anyone that's not yours. Anything or anyone that you don't have or that you're not in a relationship with. Often it's wanting someone sexually you're not in a relationship with or coveting what your neighbor has, your neighbor's wife, it talks about in the Bible, your neighbor's husband. But it could also be lusting, coveting, desiring someone else's job, someone else's life, someone else's family, thinking that that will make you happy. And then Peter talks about drunkenness, which is pretty self-explanatory. And then he talks about orgies and carousing, which how often do you talk about orgies in church? But these are really a way of just defining these big drinking parties where all kinds of craziness ensues. And then idolatry, this idea of worshiping other gods through pagan rituals that often involved prostitutes and making sacrifices. This is the kind of life that these Christians had come from. Essentially, these Christians and the people around them still then lived like this. And I think it's easy for us to skip past this list for two reasons. One, maybe we say this doesn't relate to me at all because I don't do any of this crazy stuff. Or B, this is so prudish. This is the classic Christian rhetoric about purity and sex that suppresses people's freedom to unhealthy ways and denies their actual humanity. Right? We can just, just, submiss- like, uh, just uh, push this to the side because it either doesn't relate to us or this is just an old way of thinking. But the point of all this isn't simply to give a list of sins to avoid because each one of these things actually at the heart is throwing off limits, throwing off restraints, throwing off concern for others, and pursuing whatever you want however you want it. It's worshiping the gods of, of pleasure, of comfort, the god of our own desires, making idols out of sex, food, drink, pleasure, power over your own life making an idol out of whatever you consider freedom to be, saying that no one else has the right to tell me what's best for my life. Only I make those decisions. Not even God can speak into those things. This is at the heart of why Peter says we don't live for evil human desires. This can't be our life's pursuit, letting our desires and only our desires lead us. This can't be the first thing in our life. But when we do live this way, we waste our lives 
by making our desires first before anything else, by making what we want the final adjudicator of what is good, of what is right, of what is best, what I want, what we want. This is how Peter says we waste our life. It's why Peter says that they've spent enough of their life. He said, you've spent enough of your life living this way, living for these empty pursuits. You spend enough time wasting your life with things that don't matter, that don't satisfy, that don't align with your new life in Jesus. So here's a question we can answer in the comment section. What are ways that people are most tempted to waste their lives away? Or maybe make it personal. What is a way that you're most tempted to waste your life away? Go. Peter says that your lives are worth so much more than this previous way of life. Your new identities are the chosen people of God, dearly loved, forgiven, unashamed, not weighed down by guilt, having gained a new perspective on life and what is ultimate. Don't waste your life on these empty ways of living. But we see in verse 4 that it isn't just the internal battle that these early Christians experienced to waste their lives but their friends and their neighbors who are still living their lives this way, they're so surprised that, they, that they've given up this old lifestyle for a new one that they get mocked. Peter says they heap abuse on them. And some of us can relate to this personally. Having friends or coworkers, if we consider ourselves Christians, having people in our lives, maybe even family members who openly mock you for not choosing to have sex, for not going to get hammered every night, to not cheating or cutting corners at work to get that promotion or hit that monthly goal. You get mocked for not wasting your life on pursuing all this stuff that doesn't matter to you anymore. Because here's the reason, it's because we've come to experience that life with God is better than anything you ever had before. But the reality is that in our broader culture, we as Christians are the ones who are thought to be wasting our lives away by suppressing our desires, suppressing our true selves, by remaining committed in our marriages even when it seems like they don't fit anymore, remaining committed to integrity even when it hurts our careers, remaining committed to a biblical sexual ethic even though it doesn't align with what we feel in the moment. In our culture right now, it seems that the intelligent, the intellectual thing is to be open to anything with the greatest guide being what our deepest desires are and the primary boundary in doing no harm. But Peter's saying no. He's looked back at his life, at the model of Jesus, at the lives of those around him, in the culture around him, and he's come to the conclusion that it's all empty. It's an empty way of life that Paul says. That's the only life worth living is one that's centered on God, his love, his purposes, his will, as we see in verse 2. 
It isn't that desire is bad. The problem is that we make our desire ultimate. C.S. Lewis says, has this great uh, paragraph about desires in the book, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, it isn't that desire is bad. It's simply that our desires have aimed much too low. And contrary to what most people think, living a life that is aimed at God's will and his purposes is the way to real life. Infinite joy, C.S. Lewis would say. We're too easily pleased with wasting our life on what isn't real. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 too. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. One version says in your soul will delight in the richest affair. So Peter's first word of advice to us is to not waste our lives on living for too small or shallow of things. Get perspective on what actually matters in life and we get that perspective by seeing from God's perspective. This is how we learn what really is a waste of our time, a waste of our lives. Verses five and six say, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now these verses can kind of seem confusing, so let me summarize it. Here's what Peter is saying. Those, of the, those who mock you and judge you as being oppressed, not liberated, small-minded, prudish, missing out, God will judge them, just like he judges everyone. He'll be the final one that makes the call about who has wasted their life, who has chosen what is best. He goes on in verse 6 to say that those Christians who are now, now dead, pagans think that they're right about how you need to live it up now because now these Christians are dead and they missed out on so much in their lives. But Peter is saying that it might seem like these pagans are right, but really those who are dead in Christ are actually alive in spirit with him. They aren't dead and they won't remain dead. And Peter has referenced throughout the letter that our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus because one day we'll share in the physical resurrection. In Christ, you don't only live once. So we don't waste our lives on pursuing our own desires above everything else, but we look and live for God's approval, looking to God's judgment and God's perspective. But Peter says, if you're going to waste your life, waste it on what actually matters. Waste it on what actually matters. When we realize that God is the ultimate judge, we realize that we only have to live for his approval, his voice saying, well done to our lives, to our decisions. Peter reminds his audience in verse 7 that the end of all things is near. This gives even more teeth to the imperatives from Peter to not waste your life. Live for God's will. Live for God's approval because the end is near. The end of your life will come more quickly than you imagine. And the end of all things, when the final judgment comes, is coming more quickly than you imagine. So with that perspective, how do we spend our lives? How do we waste our lives living for God, the one who has made us for himself, the one that we find our ultimate delight and joy and rest in? Well, first, Peter says we waste our lives on prayer. We waste our lives in prayer. In verse 7b, it says, Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. When we waste our lives 
when we live our li- when we live in a way that goes from one desire to the next, from the continual pursuit looking for what will ultimately satisfy. It's a struggle to be focused. It's a struggle to really be aware of what's happening in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in our world. It's hard to keep perspective that the end is near. We lose sight of God's big vision when we're consumed by our small visions, only what's in front of us. So we need to be alert, Peter says. We need to be aware of what is actually happening in the world, not just what we see from a cursory cursory look and then we go back to our own individual lives. We need to look up. We need to look up and see what's happening in the lives of those around us in our church community, in our broader communities, in the world. What is it that's happening? What is it that God is doing? We need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded, which is the opposite of drunkenness. How does this help our prayers? Because it shows us how to pray. So much of prayer is coming in alignment with what God wants to do. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's in alignment with the values of God's kingdom. And so when we pray, when we're alert, when we're sober-minded, we can be prepared to pray in alignment with what God's will is, what his purposes are, but also what we see God doing. When we're alert and sober-minded when we pray is that we're prepared to hear God speak to us, that we're not concerned by so many other things, but we're focused on hearing God's voice, on living for God's will like Peter talks about. So when we pray, we have focus. This will shape the way that we pray. Of course, there's nothing too small that we can bring to God in prayer. God will never say, why would you even talk to me about this? But the challenge is when our prayers are only small, when they're only about the immediate lives that we live. This means that our vision for what prayers and what prayer can do is too small. We need to get God's vision for the world and how prayer is tied to seeing his kingdom come like Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Andrew Murray, a pastor in the late 19th century who wrote an incredible book on prayer, says this, to pray constantly only for ourselves is a mark of failure in prayer. But when we spend time with God as our Father, as worshiping him as the one who is in heaven, like the Lord's prayer teaches us. When we pray that his kingdom was come and his will would be done through our prayers, by his spirit, through our hands and feet, through our lives, through our churches. When we spend time asking God for our needs, asking for forgiveness, and we extend it to others. When we ask God to keep us from sin and protect us from the evil one. When we remember that everything is God's and everything comes back to him. We pray that full and robust way when we're alert and sober-minded. Our prayer become full and rich, not just inward focused, but God focused. And this is why as a church, we've set to set aside the first Saturday of every month to gather together to pray. And our the first, next first Saturday prayer would have been Labor Day weekend. And so we're going to actually move it back to August 29th. But we're going to gather together. We're still working out the details of whether we can do that in person or not. But mark your calendar for Saturday, August 29th. So we can gather together to pray, to be alert, to be sober-minded, and to pray that God's kingdom would come in us, through us, and in our communities. So set that date aside. So Peter says we waste our life on prayer. But Peter also says we should waste our lives building up the church. We waste our lives on building up the church. See, the next four verses, uh, verses 8 through 11, Peter says what is crucial, and he tells us what is crucial in building up the church. See, remember that the outside community is pressing against these Christians to conform. 
the culture, the water that they swim in has values and an ethos that is so different than the way of Jesus. And so it's in the church, the communities of those who have been transformed, impact, conformed to the image of Jesus, who have experienced the grace and kindness of God. It's these people that God is saying, build up the church, build up the community, waste your life on building up this community. Peter says, this is how you do it. In verses 8 through 11, he says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, it's so popular and easy to tear down the institution of the church. It's easy to make fun, pick holes, and criticize the church. Even as a pastor, I find it so much easier to critique the church and Christians instead of building it up. We're easy targets. We live in an era and a culture where it's not just, uh, not just critiquing the church, but being critical of anything, deconstructing anything, will always come across as more intelligent. It's more intelligent in our culture to critique, to criticize, to deconstruct, to be against than it is to build up, to encourage, to focus on what is good and make it even better. There are actually two studies done, one at Harvard Business School and one at Central Michigan University. And they showed the way that we view negativity and critique as way more intelligent. So first, the Harvard study uh, had students read two New York Times book reviews. And it was actually written, both reviews were written by the same anonymous reviewer about two different books. One review was positive, one was negative. The students were then asked to state which reviewer seemed more intelligent to them. The results were clear. The students thought the negative reviewer was smarter than the positive one, and they said in quotes, by a lot, even though they were written by the same person. While the students thought the negative reviewer was less kind, they said that that person was definitely smarter. At Central Michigan, the study, they had asked students to write movie reviews that they would share with a partner. Some of the reviewers were told to write in such a way that would make their partner feel warm towards them. Other reviewers were told to write reviews which made them appear smart. And guess what? Those who wanted to seem intelligent were significantly more negative in their reviews than those who were trying to be endearing. See, we naturally think that to critique, to tear down, to poke holes is more intelligent, is more intellectually honest than to build up. I think it's clear from these studies and probably from our experiences that these biases aren't rooted in truth, but in our perception. Peter knows this, and so he says, waste your life on building up the church, on building up the body of Christ, and building up the community of believers, not tearing it down, not critiquing it, which is so easy for me to do. It's so easy for us to do. There's, of course, a place for critique and challenge, and I think that for many of us, we've had to deconstruct some of our previous church experiences to be able to remain committed to Jesus. We've had to separate who Jesus is from who the church is because the church and Christians haven't painted a picture of Jesus that has been accurate. The church hasn't always shown an accurate picture of God's heart for people for the world. But what Peter is saying is you should waste your life on building up the church, the people of the church, the people of God, the community of Jesus followers. Peter gives us three ways to do that in these verses. 
First, he says, we love deeply. Second, we offer hospitality. And third, we serve each other with the gifts God has given us. So first, we love deeply. This is the ultimate. That's why Peter says, above all. In verse 8, he says, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter's saying, if you're going to do anything, waste your life by building up the church through loving deeply. This word deeply, while it captures some of the meaning of the Greek word, the literal translation is at full stretch. We're to love others in the church at full stretch, pushing the limits of what seems possible. That's because in community, real love really is pushed to the limits. It's not enough to just want to care for people's needs. That's much easier than actually becoming vulnerable and actually coming to a place where we have a deep affection for people, especially people who are different than us. It's a different thing to become vulnerable, to open up your hearts, and like we'll talk about soon, open our homes. It pushes our ability, pushes our ability to the limits, to love. But this is who we're called to love deeply. We're called to love deeply Mike, who has political views that we find offensive. We're called to deeply love and care for Jen, who can't stop talking about herself and her problems all the time. These aren't people who are easy to love. We aren't easy people to love. That's why Peter says to love to the limits. And when we do that kind of love, that it covers over a multitude of sins. And we need it to do this. We need that kind of love to cover over a multitude of sins. Because as we dig deeper in a relationship with people in the church, we have lots more opportunities to be offended. Some are real issues and some are just imagined by us. Or we superimpose on people's intentions. But whatever the case, this is the kind of love that keeps no record of wrongs, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. We don't hold things against people when they hurt or offend us, not just in the big things, but we don't hold little grudges or judgments either. We become accepting of other people despite their weaknesses, character flaws, and peculiarities. So here's our next question for the comment section. What is one of the challenges to loving people deeply in the church who are different than us? So we waste our lives by deeply loving one another in the church. And we waste our lives by building up the church through showing hospitality. We show hospitality. In verse 9, Peter says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality means literally the love of strangers. But in this context, it means with other Christians. This is an important way to show the kind of love that Peter is talking about. We build up the church through love by welcoming others into our homes. And it doesn't just mean their physical homes. It means we invite people into the center part of our lives. 
We invite people not just into the fringes that feel safe, but into the center part of our lives. Hospitality says that we don't only reserve our home for our closest friends or, or family members and keep others at bay, but we welcome people that we don't know as well. We welcome people that we're called to deeply love into the centers of our lives. See, the early church didn't have church buildings to themselves. They either met in homes or in spaces that they borrowed or rented. It might sound familiar to us at Lakewood Vineyard. So church gatherings were often in people's homes, and when they were, it was the host's responsibility to care for those who came over. It was to provide the basis of a meal for drinks, for making sure they're taken care of. People would bring food to share, but it was the host that cared primarily for the needs of those who were there. And Peter says we have to do the action of hospitality, of welcoming people in, but it's not just we can't do it begrudgingly, but he says to do it without grumbling. We invite people into our homes because we love deeply. It's not just about the actions, but it's also about the attitude. Peter talks about that in verse 1, having the attitude of Jesus. And I know in this COVID world that we live in, this is difficult and even discouraged to invite people into our homes. And trust me, no one feels this more than me. All I want to do is invite people over to our home, throw parties, throw a block party. Just a few months after we moved to Lakewood, we threw a Christmas party that was filled with people, some we knew well, some we had just met. That's our heart. That's a way we love to do life. And yet I know in large ways, a lot of this seems to be on hold. We can safely do some things for sure, but on a large scale, it's more challenging. We can do things outside, and so we'll have our picnic uh, in the next couple weeks. Um, actually, this coming uh, Saturday, we'll be having our picnic together at the park and finding other ways to gather together. But let me ask you this question. I don't have the answer for you, but how can you show hospitality to others in our church community during this season? That's not rhetorical. I mean, literally, how can you do it? How can you welcome others into, if not your physical home, into your life, more deeply into the center of your life? How can you do that? And finally, Peter says, use your gifts to serve others and build up the church. Serve with the gifts God has given you. In verses 10 and 11, Peter says that whatever the gift is you've received, use it to serve one another. Now, this isn't personality that Peter's talking about or necessarily a, a learned skill. Peter is talking about spiritual gifts, gifts that have been given by grace, charismata, which means grace gifts, gifts that we didn't earn, but we just have received. And these are the kind of gifts that when we do them, they bring us life and they bring life to other people. That's often a distinguishing thing between maybe just a, a talent or something we can do well is if it's a gift from the Lord, it, it gives us life when we do it and it gives life to others around us. Now, if I do administrative things, uh, I can do them okay, but it gives me no life and I'm not sure how much other people are blessed when I dive too deeply into administrative things. But if I get the opportunity to exhort or to preach or to teach like I am right now, I find a lot of joy in life in it and I think it helps other people too. So for me, I'm called to use that gifting that God has given me. If I don't, I'm not being a faithful steward of what he's given me. I'm wasting it. This idea of, of steward is that we don't own it. It's something that's been given freely and we're responsible to take care of that which has been given to us. See, Peter says that if your gift is in the area of speaking, teaching, preaching, evangelism, encouraging, leading, and others, if that's where God has gifted you, speak as if the words you are speaking are from God. Remember that your words matter. 
All of our words matter when we're talking about building up the church in love. But for those of us who are called to serve through our words, we need to weigh our words seriously and realize that we truly can bring life or death to people. If you're serving as a, or have served as a teacher with kids, vineyard kids, or you're a community group leader, a want to lead in a community group, or you've led teams, or you have a heart to lead worship, or you are leading worship, or you've been part of the prayer team, want to be part of the prayer team, greeting people on our first impressions team, these are people whose words matter. These are places in Lakewood Vineyard where your words matter. Love deeply with God's words. This might be where God's given you spiritual gifting. And Peter says, if your gift is serving, which are really the things what Peter is talking about are those things that are not primarily through verbal communication. All this is serving. But Peter's talking about those things that aren't primarily verbal communication. He's saying helping, serving tangible needs, showing mercy and compassion, caring for the poor, setting up with operations team, running sound, lighting, video, and instrument, behind the scenes type of things. Peter says, that the strength that you have to do those things, the creativity that you need, the endurance that you need, the strategy that you need, do it with the strength, with the resources that God provides. He says, use the gifts that God has given you to build up the church. God will show you how to use them outside of the church too. But Peter isn't talking about that in this passage. He's saying, invest in the life of your church community. And right now we're working on the plans and our timing to begin to gather in person again. And and with that, we know that not everyone will feel safe or will, will it even be safe for them to return for those who are in vulnerable populations. We totally understand that. We respect that. We love you. But others that do feel safe and aren't in those high risk groups, when we regather on on Sunday mornings again, we need you. We needed you before, but we'll need you, all hands on deck, to serve one another, to create an environment where people feel welcomed, where they feel loved, where they feel valued as they come into worship, maybe for the first time. When we reopen Vineyard Kids, we'll need teachers and teachers' assistants. Many of our volunteers won't be able to return, and we'll need you. If you know God has gifted you with kids, we need you. And more than that, God is calling you to be a good steward of that gift that he's put in you. And many of you saw that that video that Brian Karras made, our worship leader here, and we're looking to build our worship team, musicians, singers, people who have experience with audio, lighting, video, computers, but also people who are willing to learn the technical side of it. If that's you, we need you. If you already know that God has gifted you in those areas, or you're genuinely interested in learning, we'd love to have you join our team. We're going to post a link to a quick form where you can let us know how you think you can use your gifts to build up the community, to build up the church of Lakewood Vineyard. It'll have spaces for the worship team, the tech team, kids ministry, but other ways as well, too. Some of those ways will be on Sunday mornings, but others won't. Pray about it. Ask God. How can the gifts that you've given me be best used to serve others in the church? And if you aren't sure about it and you look at the form, I have no idea. Let's chat. Why don't you email me, matt at lakewoodvineyard.com. We'll set up a time to talk about what has God put in your heart? What are your passions? What are you gifted at? And how we can find ways for that to build up the body of Christ at Lakewood Vineyard. And so Peter says, waste your life. Waste your life on building up the church through love, through hospitality, and through serving with your gifts. 
And Peter's final words to us are this. When we do this, as we do this, it's all for God's praise. It's all to point to one another in the church to God. In the church, we're supposed to be reminded that it's all for God's praise. If we find ourselves in positions where everyone's pointing to us, and it's all coming to us, we have the focus in the wrong place. This is all supposed to point back to God, to his incredible love for us. It's supposed to transform our community because we're pointing people to God. And then out of that, our community is so transformed as a church that, that we live such good lives, as Peter has said, that those outside of the church wonder what is so different about these people. Where does their hope, like we talked about, come from? So as we go to worship and song again, would you take this time to ask God this question? How is it that you're calling me to waste my life living for you and building up the church? What's the next step for me, God? So as we go to worship, would you reflect on that question and ask God to speak to you and be aware of what comes up in your heart and go to that form. We'll send that link out and go to that form, fill it out. Let us know what God's putting on your heart. Thanks for joining us. We especially want to thank those of you who give generously to what God is doing through Lakewood Vineyard. If you'd like to give, click the link in the description or visit lakewoodvineyard.com give. If you enjoyed this week's message, you can subscribe to the podcast for more, share it with friends and family, and leave a review. If you post a screenshot of the podcast on your social media, tag us at Lakewood Vineyard OH. Thanks so much for listening and may God bless you this week.